Section 2 of In Times Like These by Nellie McClung. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 The War That Ends in Exhaustion Sometimes Mistaken for Peace. When a skirl of pipes came down the street and the blare of bands and the march of feet, I could not keep from marching too, for the pipes cried, Come, and the bands said, Do. And when I heard the pealing fife, I cared no more for human life. Away back in the cave-dwelling days there was a simple and definite distribution of labor. Men fought and women worked. Men fought because they liked it, and women worked because it had to be done. Of course the fighting had to be done, too. There was always a warring tribe out looking for trouble while their womenfolk stayed home and worked. They were never threatened with a long peace. Somebody was always willing to go it. The young bloods could always be sure of good fighting somewhere, and no questions asked. The masculine attitude toward life was, I feel good today, I'll go out and kill something. Tribes fought for their existence and so the work of the warrior was held to be the most glorious of all. Indeed, it was the only work that counted. The woman's part consisted of tilling the soil, gathering the food, tanning the skins and fashioning garments, brewing the herbs, raising the children, dressing the warrior's wounds, looking after the herds, and any other light and airy trifle which might come to her notice. But all this was in the background. Plain useful work has always been considered dull and drab. Everything depended on the warrior. When the boys came home there was much festivity, music and feasting, and tales of the chase and fight. The women provided the feast and washed the dishes. The soldier has always been the hero of our civilization and yet almost any man makes a good soldier. Nearly every man makes a good soldier, but not every man, or nearly every man makes a good citizen. The tests of war are not so searching as the tests of peace, but still the soldier is the hero. Very early in the lives of our children we begin to inculcate the love of battle and sieges and invasions for we put the miniature weapons of warfare into their little hands. We buy them boxes of tin soldiers at Christmas, and help them to build forts and blow them up. We have military training in our schools, and little fellows are taught to shoot at targets, seeing in each an imaginary foe who must be destroyed because he is, quote, not on our side, unquote. There is a song which runs like this, if a lad a maid would marry, he must learn a gun to carry, thereby putting love and love-making on a military basis. But it goes. Military music is in our ears, and even in our churches. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war is a Sunday-school favorite. We pray to the God of battles, never by any chance to the God of workshops. Once a year, of course, we hold a Peace Sunday, and on that day we pray mightily that God will give us peace in our time, and that war shall be no more. 
and the spear shall be beaten into the pruning-hook. But the next day we show God that he need not take us too literally, for we go on with the military training, and the building of the battleships, and our orators say that in time of peace we must prepare for war. War is the antithesis of all our teaching. It breaks all the commandments. It makes rich men poor and strong men weak. It makes well men sick, and by it living men are changed to dead men. Why, then, does war continue? Why do men go so easily to war? For we may as well admit that they do go easily. There is one explanation. They like it. When the first contingent of soldiers went to the war from Manitoba, there stood on the station platform a woman crying bitterly. She was not the only one. She had in her arms an infant, and three small children stood beside her, wondering. He would go, she sobbed in reply to the sympathy expressed by the people who stood near her. He loves a fight. He went through the South African War, and he's never been happy since. When he hears war is on, he says, I'll go. He loves it. He does. He loves it. That explains many things. Father sent me out, said a little Irish girl, to see if there's a fight going on any place, because if there is, please, Father would like to be in it. Unfortunately, Father's predilection to fight is not wholly confined to the Irish. But although men like to fight, war is not inevitable. War is not of God's making. War is a crime committed by men, and therefore, when enough people say it shall not be, it cannot be. This will not happen until women are allowed to say what they think of war. Up to the present time women have had nothing to say about war, except pay the price of war. This privilege has been theirs always. History, romance, legend, and tradition, having been written by men, have shown the masculine aspect of war, and have surrounded it with a false glory, and have sought to throw the veil of glamour over its hideous face. Our histories have followed the wars, Invasions, conquests, battles, sieges make up the subject matter of our histories. Some glorious soul, looking out upon his neighbors, saw some country that he thought he could use, and so he levied a heavy tax on the people, and, with the money, fitted out a splendid army. Men were called from their honest work to go out and fight other honest men, who had never done them any harm. Harvest fields were trampled by their horses' feet. Villages burned. Women and children fled in terror and perished of starvation. Streets ran blood, and the glorious soul came home victorious with captives chained to his chariot wheel. When he drove through the streets of his own hometown, all the people cheered, that is, all who had not been killed, of course. What the people thought of all this, the historians do not say. The people were not asked or expected to think. Thinking was the most unpopular thing they could do. There were dark, damp dungeons where hungry rats prowled ceaselessly, 
There were headsmen's axes and other things prepared for people who were disposed to think, and specially designed to allay restlessness among the people. The people were dealt with in one short paragraph at the end of the chapter. Quote, the people were very poor, unquote. You wouldn't think they would need to say that, and certainly there was no need to rub it in. And they ate black bread, and they were very ignorant and superstitious. Superstitious? Well, I should say they would be. Small wonder if they did see black cats and have rabbits cross their paths, and hear death warnings, for there was always going to be a death in the family, and they were always about to lose money. The people were a great abstraction, infinite in number, inarticulate in suffering. The people who fought and paid for their own killing. The man who could get the people to do this on the largest scale was the greatest hero of all, and the historian told us much about him, his dogs, his horses, the magnificence of his attire. Some day, please God, there will be new histories written, and they will tell the story of the years from the standpoint of the people, and the hero will not be any red-headed assassin who goes through peaceful country places leaving behind him dead men looking sightlessly up to the sky. The hero will be the man or woman who knows and loves and serves. In the new histories we will be shown the tragedy, the heartbreaking tragedy of war, which like some dreadful curse has followed the human family, beaten down their plans, their hopes, wasted their savings, destroyed their homes, and in every way turned back the clock of progress. We have all wondered what would happen if the people some day decided that they would no longer be the tools of the man higher up. What would happen if the men who make the quarrel had to fight it out? How glorious it would have been if this war could have been settled by somebody taking the Kaiser out behind the barn. There would seem to be some show of justice in a hand-to-hand -hand encounter where the best man wins. But modern warfare has not even the faintest glimmering of fair play. The exploding shell blows to pieces the strong, the brave, the daring, just as readily as it does the cowardly, weak, or base. War proves nothing. To kill a man does not prove that he was in the wrong. Bloodletting cannot change men's spirits, neither can the evil of men's thoughts be driven out by blows. If I go to my neighbor's house and break her furniture and smash her pictures and bind her children captive, it does not prove that I am fitter to live than she. Yet, according to the ethics of nations, it does. I have conquered her, and she must pay me for my trouble. And her house and all that is left in it belongs to my heirs and successors forever. That is war. War twists our whole moral fabric. The object of all our teaching has been to inculcate respect for the individual, respect for human life, honor, and purity. War sweeps that all aside. The human conscience in these long years of peace and its resultant opportunities for education has grown tender to the cry of agony. The pallid face of a hungry child finds a quick response to its mute appeal. 
but when we know that hundreds are rendered homeless every day, and countless thousands are killed and wounded, men and boys mowed down like a field of grain, and with as little compunction, we grow a little bit numb to human misery. What does it matter if there is a family north of the track living on soda biscuits and turnips? War hardens us to human grief and misery. War takes the fit and leaves the unfit. The epileptic, the consumptive, the inebriate are left behind. They are not good enough to go out to fight. So they stay at home and perpetuate the race. Statistics prove that the war is costing fifty millions a day, which is a prodigious sum, but we would be getting off easy if that were all it costs. The bitterest cost of war is not paid by us at all. It will be paid by the unborn generations, in a lowered vitality, the loss of a strong fatherhood which they have never known. Napoleon lowered the stature of the French by two inches, it is said. That is one way to set your mark on your generation. But the greatest evil wrought by war is not the wanton destruction of life and property, sinful though it is. It is not even the lowered vitality of succeeding generations, though that is attended by appalling injury to the moral nature. The real iniquity of war is that it sets aside the arbitrament of right and justice, and looks to brute force for its verdict. In the first days of panic, pessimism broke out among us, and we cried in our despair that our civilization had failed, that Christianity had broken down, and that God had forgotten the world. It seemed like it at first, but now a wiser and better vision has come to us, and we know that Christianity has not failed for it is not fair to impute failure to something which has never been tried. Civilization has failed. Art, music, and culture have failed, and we know now that underneath the thin veneer of civilization unregenerate man is still a savage. And we see now, what some have never seen before, that unless a civilization is built upon love and mutual trust, it must always end in disaster, such as this. Up to August 4th, we often said that war was impossible between Christian nations. We still say so, but we know more now than we did then. We know now that there are no Christian nations. Oh, yes, I know the story. It was a beautiful story and a beautiful picture. The black prince of Abyssinia asked the young queen of England what was the secret of England's glory, and she pointed to the open Bible. The dear queen of sainted memory was wrong. She judged her nation by the standard of her own pure heart. England did not draw her policy from the open Bible when in 1840 she forced the opium traffic on the Chinese England does not draw her policy from the open Bible when she takes revenues from the liquor traffic, which works such irreparable ruin to countless thousands of her people. England does not draw her policy from the open Bible when she denies her women the rights of citizens, when women are refused degrees after passing examinations, 
when lower pay is given women for the same work than if it were done by men? Would this be tolerated if it were really so that we were a Christian nation? God abominates a false balance and delights in a just weight. No, the principles of Christ have not yet been applied to nations. We have only Christian people. You will see that in a second if you look at the disparity that there is between our conceptions of individual duty and national duty. Take the case of the heathen, the people whom we have in our large-handed, superior way called the heathen. Individually we believe it is our duty to send missionaries to them to convert them into Christians. Nationally we send armies upon them, if necessary, and convert them into customers. Individually we say, we will send you our religion. Nationally, we will send you goods, and we'll make you take them. We need the money. Think of the bitter irony of a boat leaving a Christian port, loaded with missionaries upstairs and rum below, both bound for the same place and for the same people, both for the heathen, with our compliments. Individually we know it is wrong to rob anyone, yet the state robs freely, openly, and unashamed, by unjust taxation, by the legalized liquor traffic, by imposing unjust laws upon at least one half of the people. We wonder at the disparity between our individual ideals and the national ideal, but when you remember that the national ideals have been formed by one half of the world, and not the more spiritual half, it is not so surprising. Our national policy is the result of male statecraft. There is a curative power in human life, just as there is in nature. When the pot boils, it boils over. Evils cure themselves eventually, but it is a long, hard way. Yet it is the way humanity has always had to learn. Christ realized that when he looked down at Jerusalem and wept over it. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but you would not. That was the trouble then, and it has been the trouble ever since. Humanity has to travel a hard road to wisdom, and it has to travel it with bleeding feet. But it is getting its lessons now, and paying double first-class rates for its tuition. End of section 2